Hello and welcome once again to Rasslin Memories on Pioneer 90.1 FM KSRQ. You can also check out this live and in the moment at RadioNorthland.org and you can get hooked up to our SoundCloud page too where we have all of our Rasslin Memories. Oh, I've been uh, starting to look back at some of these wrestling memories and, uh, you know, just to do some prep uh, for an upcoming interview. And I'm like, wow, the people we've been able to chat with has been great. And it's been great to uh, be a host. You know, my name is Glenn Broggett, along with my sidekick, the Grizzle Vet. Not my sidekick, my equal in the fight, let's just say. And Mike, it's good to have you back again. And we're, we're here for a, a tribute episode here, but it's good to have you. Yes, another one of the tribute episodes. You know, always good to look back and remember these people because, you know, like I've always said, if we don't remember, you know, the ones that have passed on, that history is going to get lost. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is why we, you know, as we get older, we'll eventually hopefully be able to pass it on to our, the next generation. But, yeah, there's a lot of uh, information that needs to be shared here and it needs to be, you know, just to up, keep it, just keep the the upkeep on it, you know. We don't want it to fall into, you know, exaggeration or, or how many different angles. You know how the Internet's been, man. Social media is a bit of a ride. A, a little bit, yeah. So you can't let, you know. I just received the other day, just you know, early birthday present. Birthday's coming up about a week or so. I got a magazine for my kids. It's called Hulk Hogan, The Unbelievable True Story. And <laughs> that title is more than enough because you guarantee there's going to be some whoppers in that book. Oh, that, regarding you know how the stories are inflated over the years, that is perfect. That's the perfect title for a Hogan, whether it's a comic book or a magazine or whatever. But we've got, uh, I think, somebody. I would take him over Hogan in certain instances. I'm not to, to, not to discredit you know discredit Hogan, but we're going to talk today about the life of Terry Funk, who we lost here uh, in, in the end of uh, the month of August. August 23rd. Passing away at the age of 79. And, Mike, you have lined up a, a guest. And this is where I feel outnumbered because now I'm going to be having not one but two mics once again. But you know what? This is okay. That's why I put on your little uh, clean feed, Grizzle Whiz. But anyway, Mike, you want to give the introductions, my friend? We can get into this tribute, do it good, right, and proper because our guest has a – it's a bit of a time constraint today, So, but he's been – he opened up his schedule enough to, to chat with us. So let's give him that proper respect. Yes, the great Grizzle Wiz shall do this uh, introduction proper. Um, always look forward to having this man on as a guest on the show. I email him. He's always willing to come on and talk with us. And unfortunately, a lot of it has been tribute episodes uh, recently, but always a pleasure to have him on. We're going to talk about, like you said, the career of Terry Funk passed away October, August, October, August 23rd, 2023. Our guest this week, Dr. Mike Leno. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, everybody. I would have put a uh, inserted a question mark in that uh, Hogan book, you know, the you title, and, and had that question mark uh, in it throughout. That's a good uh, one, too. I, you know, I, I know you guys are going to probably be talking at, at some point about uh, Wyndham Rotunda, Bray Wyatt, but we also lost, and I've been talking a lot or trying to save my voice for this show, on uh, Bruce, uh, Buzz Sawyer's brother. Yes. Or half-brother, whatever he was, uh, Bruce Wyans. Uh, I... Uh, had gone and actually taken pictures around 90, 91. I was in Tampa a lot for a lot of indie shows and had a friend, uh, uh, Pink Cadillac and, and others there, and also was covering Debbie Malenko. But uh, Buzz Sawyer's brother had his own gym and training center, and they put on shows similar and more ethical to Buzz Sawyer's Northern California. I think it was in Sacramento thereabouts. 
as Mike will remember, uh, where allegedly, although I was there for some of it and, mm -hmm. and heard the boys, you know, the kids say, hey, he stretched me and then he took my money and refused to give it back saying I uh, wasn't tough enough for the wrestling biz. But uh, so uh, Buzz's brother, half brother, whatever, stepbrother, uh, had at least a less complained about school. But on Terry Funk, legend of legends, the guy I was fortunate enough to know, first got to meet in 1969 briefly. Uh, they came in, the Funk brothers, and I'll, I'll get into this, but there was no learning tree, nobody more of a Madonna-like metamorphosizing personality in, in wrestling, I'm not going to call it sports entertainment, than Terry Funk, uh, who always was giving of himself to anybody that wanted to, to learn. I, obviously, his biggest fans like a Tommy Dreamer, who Terry helped immensely. Uh, I, I'm going to be rambling here a little bit, but I do have an outline. Uh, uh, well, let's just start with the ECW tribute dinner to Terry Funk, which was the night before their very first pay-per-view oh, yeah. that Japan had flown me in to cover living dangerously it was and i want to credit tommy uh, dreamer here because he and paul Heyman did a magnificent job that saturday night before the sunday pay-per-view this tribute dinner i mean to see new jack and, and so many others all dressed up like new jack had uh, i've got the photos i think it was a white tux and then he switched into a, a black uh, tux he brought two tuxes for this thing and everybody from ecw a lot of the heels weren't there uh, I guess they were trying to keep them away or, you know, whatever it was. Sabu, who I don't even recall as being a heel, but the, the Dudleys, they weren't there either. But everybody else was, Taz, etc. because the main event the next day was Taz uh, versus Sabu, who Heyman had managed to keep apart, you know, no touching for almost a whole year leading up to that. But so there's that. But Terry Funk, I first saw, he came into Los Angeles during a brief territory war when our office, the LaBelle office, I was a ringside photographer, did some writing for Jeff Walton's program there. But Vern Gagne thought he would, it was just weird. It made no sense. He would come into the area because Jack Kent Cook, who owned the Lakers, the NHL, uh, LA Kings, and the fabulous forum venue itself, uh, in partnership, they, they put on only two shows. They were loaded shows, but... Sam Munchnick, to help out my big boss, promoter Mike LaBelle in L.A., sent in the Funk family and tons of talent that a lot of our audience had never seen before from other territories. Like the opening match for one of the shows that went opposite the Vern Gagne show at the Fabulous Forum, and, and these our shows were at the Olympic. Opening match was, uh, I think it was Don Leo Jonathan and... Well, uh, Don Leo Jonathan, and uh, he was in Prince Curtis Ayake against Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson. It went on up. Uh, lots of Dory Jr. title offenses. But that first time they debuted in California at all, Dory Sr., Dory Jr., and Terry ran down the ramp collectively in their cowboy leather fanciest gear, shouting, we finally made it. We're finally here in California. We're here in L.A. And Terry, in particular, would return nearly every single year. Uh, for example, they came back, Dory Jr. and Terry, to defend uh, tag straps they'd never, ever... One, but it, it was put on them. It, was, it wasn't quite a phantom title change because the match occurred, but they were just given these titles to basically lose them. This was even before, this was uh, 
March of 19, excuse me, it was like April of 1972. And the main event was the Funk Brothers dropping the quote unquote international world tag titles to Giant Baba, Shohei Baba, and Seiji Sakaguchi. So this was before Sakaguchi left Baba and uh, uh, the Ricky Dozan's original JWA promotion to, to go with Inoki December of 72 to form initially New Japan. Uh, but Terry, the following spring of 73, would win our America's title from Victor Rivera and, and would win it one more time. Uh, whenever he came in, when I talk about the metamorphosis or the Madonna-like thing, you know, a decade later when Madonna, every year she almost debuted a new look and new music style. Terry did the same thing. When he first came in to our office in 1969, he had very short cut bleach blonde hair, no facial hair. And then each time he would come in, he might have a goatee, might have grown the hair, blonde hair longer. Uh, 72, the, uh, the hair was, you know, natural color, dark brown. Uh, always different. The goatee look, the outfits different. Uh, it was, you know, it was always a, a major deal. And one of his very first title defenses after he won the NWA championship uh, was against Chavo Guerrero in early 1970. It was whenever, uh, soon after, like maybe 10, 10 days after Terry Funk had won the NWA world title, which was the most important, biggest world title on the planet. Uh, and because I had him in the Olympic Auditorium locker room do all these goofy poses uh, on the, the weight scale and holding up the belt and holding up and tearing uh, Xerox copy of uh, the program from the actual, it was a copy. I wouldn't let him tear up my original program from when he won the NWA title. But of note, and I've not even told Michael about this, was that particular belt that he was given you remember when Jack Briscoe won the title in Houston, Paul Bosch and Sam Munchnik first presented him with the Luthez title with the black leather belt, you know, small, smallish belt, but it was a historic belt. They took that away and then gave Jack a brand new title belt with the dome. This was the NWA world title belt between the Thez belt and then what we knew as like Flair and Dusty's 10 pounds of gold, the big giant one. But that dome on this particular belt, if you look at it, Terry Funk, within days of being given it uh, or winning his NWA World title match and, and becoming champion, dented in the dome. He like messed it up. He said, well, he had too many beers uh, in like a, a barroom thing and had dinged in the, the dome. And basically, you know, when it would pass to back to Harley Race, etc., Eventually, Flair saw it, and he told the office and Sam Munchnik, no, no, I, I have to have a better belt than that. That belt is, like, destroyed. I think this was a period before they would let each guy keep his own belt. Like, Luthez used to be able to keep and, quote-unquote, own his own belts after he lost them. But uh, anyway, so Terry always loved hearing about that. And I, some of the photos I have to – I should send one to, to Mike. You guys can display that I took of him, Terry, when he came to L.A., and he had like a set of goofy Halloween teeth, you know, with Halloween coming up and goofy glasses that he would put on and make all these faces. But then to have him wearing this stuff and then holding up the NWA belt, he uh, I'm sure he drove Sam Munchnik to loss of hair and uh, many gray hairs. 
Another thing I started doing, this was a little bit later on in the 80s and all through the many cauliflower alleys that Terry Funk would come to, I believe and feel in my heart that he and J.J. Dillon were our best ever annual host, onstage host for the awards banquet. Although Mike Tenay and Bobby Heaton would be a very close second, Jim Ross doing a great job as you would expect. But Terry and J.J. Dillon had such a natural uh, relationship and friendship and doing goofy stuff and serious stuff. Uh, it, they were just great. But I would take pose Terry and his wife, Vicky, and they'd been sweethearts since like the last year of junior high, all through high school. And I would pose them in the exact same shot uh, every year to sort of document how they were growing as a couple. And I want to jump back to Terry's brief, you know, it was one of the briefer reigns. It wasn't as long as like the near three year or so reign of uh, Dory Funk Jr., his brother. The only brother team ever to win that, you know, the biggest title, you know, if you want to draw lineages through it back to 1895 or Farmer Burns or whatever, you can. It's not really true, but um, they were the only ones to hold that together. And Terry asked after uh, about 13 and a half months, Sam Munchnik to take the belt off him because Vicky had left him. They'd been married all that time. She put up with, you know, as a wrestling spouse, uh, with all the stuff that goes into being a dedicated, I mean, that's one of the toughest jobs ever is to be a spouse, husband or wife of a name wrestler with all the stuff that gets thrown at these wrestlers, them on the road in particular with that insane schedule that Ric Flair would make famous, but Jack Briscoe, the same one and the belt taken off him. So Terry Funk asked Munchnik at all to have that belt taken off him so he could win back Vicky and which he did. And they stayed married uh, until she preceded him in, in death. Uh, when she passed about two and a half, three years ago, it was we knew that was going to be the beginning of the end for Terry because they were just linked at the hip. And you know, I was with them so many times. Like when they picked me up, he had in 1997, he was claiming this was his umpteenth retirement. You know, Terry Funk, perhaps the most famous or most famous for having a zillion retirements. But in Amarillo, it wasn't billed as his retirement in Amarillo. It was just billed as Terry Funk's retirement. 50 years of Funk, Russell Fest. It was a huge show for the fans in Dory Funk Sr.'s old venue. But also afterwards, later, uh, I forget if it was the, the following day, Terry and Vicky at their, it was legitimately called the Double Cross Ranch. Huge piece of property with lots of streams and little uh, miniature rivers flowing through it, uh, they had a private barbecue party, which lasted for hours or the entire Hart family. I mean, the people that came in for this thing, WWF sent in some talent. The main event, though, was Bret Hart defending the WWF title against Terry Funk. Terry, in a bloodbath, submitted to the sharpshooter on that, uh, if memory serves. But that was the, main, the huge main event, Terry's retirement. But ECW kind of ran the show. You know, uh, I was hired by Terry and Vicky to be their event photographer for that, uh, the party and, and the show itself. There were other photographers there. It was such a huge deal. Japan sent tons of talent. One of the Japanese women's group sent talent, Michinoku Pro. Victor Quinones brought talent from his Japan and Puerto Rico based IWA. And, uh, talent from Mexico. I mean, the, the Puerto Rican headhunter twins teamed up with Jake Roberts on this show. So there were guys who weren't even in promotions. Uh, like the Bushwhackers came in as their more beloved sheep herders gimmick and wrestled uh, Ricky Romero, who's a famous wrestler promoter 
in Amarillo in Colorado uh, for Dory Funk Sr., basically, where he wrestled for a long time. But he managed his two surviving sons, the Youngbloods. A lot of people didn't know Ricky Romero. I mean, incredibly famous wrestler, promoter, instructor of the biz. Uh, those were his sons. There was just a wealth of talent on that show. And, and memories of Terry picking me up in his pickup uh, from the airport there, and uh, and then taking a few of us a couple of nights before everything went down to that famous uh, Amarillo Steakhouse, where if you can eat this massive steak and all the salad and, and the potatoes and the sides they dump on it, you get it free, and it was huge. I didn't attempt to try it. Terry said he'd uh, won twice, uh, two free steak dinners off of it. Um, Terry just, you know, it, it's you look at it at his metamorphosis in terms of styles because where Dory Funk Jr. was almost like a European wrestler, you know, super scientific, using the European uppercut and mostly a mad and chain guy, which Terry was a master of, but he was more or incorporated brawling. And he, you know, when you talk about West Texas State, he said all these wrestlers that claim they went through West Texas State, I was the only one who legitimately went all four years of school and graduated from there. But he influenced other guys who came through there, even if they didn't graduate or if they were only there two years. I forget how long Frank Goodish, Bruiser Brody, was but obviously Terry Funk a huge influence on him, Stan Hansen, so many others, Teddy DiBiase, uh, a, a zillion other guys that went through there. And I, I don't want to forget, you know, with we've lost, been losing some wrestlers. Uh, Terry really valued his peers. And when Fritz von Erich was dying of lung cancer, he was always a heavy smoker. This was when Doris had left him. I, can't, I think she passed away before Fritz did. I, I could be wrong, but she had left him. So Fritz was all alone. So the last six weeks, seven weeks of Fritz von Erich, Jack Atkinson's life, Terry Funk and Killer Carl Cox, uh, who was a prison guard, you know, once he retired from his incredible wrestling career, Terry and Carl just stayed and and went to Fritz's house and brought him food and vitamins and bottled water and watch TV sports with him, you know, NFL games, and uh, played uh, cribbage, the wrestlers' board game with him, to keep him going, keep his spirits up. And you know, it's just one of the many outstanding qualities of Terry Funk. A lot of people may not know about uh, that. People should. Um, let's see. I don't want to jump around too much. Uh, Terry, I, I've had a number of wrestling radio shows since the first time I co-hosted a show in 1975 in New York City and have loved doing wrestling radio on terrestrial, real AM and FM onto podcasts. In fact, I, I, I've taken a couple of weeks off just to protect my voice uh, from my own podcast while I've been doing other people's shows, talking about Terry and uh, Bray Wyatt, etc. So I do two, normally do two weekly podcasts. I'm going to start a third. And I've already, I'm trying to trademark this, I'm kind of joking, but I want to call it uh, my, get, my, let's see, my guest at this, what did I, my guest at this time is, I'm going to call the podcast that because anytime you watch any WWTV product, pretty much really only SmackDown and Raw, and we're hearing about a lot of shuffling of where those shows are going to end up in a year today, which is insane, like all the layoffs, which I won't get into. But uh, anytime one of the in and out, you know, 
sometimes they're there X amount of months, sometimes they're gone, whatever period of time, these backstage, usually female uh, interviewers, that's, you know, they're green, they're new, they may not last long if they always open when they're interviewing somebody with my guest at this time is, or I love it, the newest one who's from Canada, Jackie something, she said, my next guest at this time is, well, she hadn't interviewed anybody yet, you know, so how could it be a next guest? Uh, anyway, so back to Terry and then doing radio. Terry it was always open to doing any radio. One time he asked if he could bring Junior on uh, with him. And they talked about seeing, particularly Terry could see where wrestling was headed. When uh, WTBS and Ted Turner's Superstation started airing wrestling and people could get cable and see all of these incredible stars that Ole Anderson was booking for Georgia Championship Wrestling, which later was renamed around 1981 World Championship Wrestling, not to be confused with the NWA thing, which went from NWA Crockett to when Turner bought it a decade later in 92 to calling itself in its show World Championship Wrestling. But anyway, Terry saw the writing on the wall. You know, people in smaller territories like, say, San Francisco or Portland or uh, Jarrett area, uh, how they'd be impacted by a show. You know, you, you guys remember what George Championship Wrestling was. It was incredible. You never knew who was going to come in and out. Uh, Mark Lewin and Abby and Blackjack Mulligan and uh, Bruce Brody might come in out of the blue and work a, a couple of weeks. And then it'd be George Steele and Dusty Rhodes' Surprise Box or Mad Dog LaShawn, who was the other guy in Dusty Rhodes' Surprise Box. You know, who he saw the territories would die with this national TV promotion, saw the writing on the wall, decided with Dory, uh, once Dory Funk Sr. died in 73, to close up shop in Amarillo, and then Blackjack Mulligan and Dick Murdoch, two West Texas State guys too, uh, you know, asked and, and begged to buy it, and they Terry said he told them, he tried to talk him out of purchasing it, you know, he said... You know, I, I just feel that this is going to be the end. It's going to be just too hard. And, and they, you know, it was about two years. They valiantly tried keeping it going, but they had to sell it to somebody else. In about a year, they gave up, and that was the end, sadly, of Amarillo. But he uh, he talked openly about seeing the future of wrestling, that it was ever-changing, and if you had to keep up with it. And if you didn't, you would be lost in the pack, or that would be the end of your territory or promotion. So he saw, you know... Years later, in 83, 84, when Vince was going national, because a lot of people forget, Terry saw that when Roy Shire retired and closed his office and then went on to expose the biz in the Los Angeles Times, but Roy was running 400 miles north in Northern California. That was his territory. Uh, I always get confused. It was either after his January 1981 Battle Royal or his 82 Battle Royal but we all knew, and the ads in the newspapers already said, within uh, four or five weeks, both Vern Gagne, AWA, and uh, Vince McMahon Jr. Before he bought the tried up well the WWF from his father, Vince Sr., were going to come in, and Vince was going to start having shows. Uh, the second, or well, within weeks after Roy Shire retired in Northern California, Vince was going to have shows at the Cow Palace which was, of course, the, the primo venue, the biggest venue for Roy Shires. You know, he had other towns, but they were all subservient to the Cow Palace. And Vern Gagne was going to run AWA shows 
both starting with Battle Royals, which is, you know, Roy Shire's biggest card of the year every January. And that's how he ended his territory with, obviously, or deservedly Pat Patterson going over. And he went over Terry Funk and Dick Slater, the last three guys, Dusty Rhodes being the fourth, in that last Roy Shire Battle Royal. But Terry saw the writing on the wall. He goes to me after that show, geez, Vince and uh, Vince Jr. He just called him Jr. Jr. and Vern Gagne are coming in here now that Roy's retiring. And that was Vince Jr.'s first foray outside of the traditional boundaries of the WWF, San Francisco, Northern California. And Terry saw it. So um, that was, you know, nobody had a wrestling mind, a wrestling brain like Terry Funk. Back to ECW. We're talking about the, uh, well, I was, since this is almost a monologue, I'm going to ask you guys if you have any questions here. But I don't want to forget to say how touching it was. So we're talking about the ECW tribute dinner. But Beulah McGillicuddy, obviously not her real name. Uh, McGillicuddy came from Paul Heyman's favorite show, I Love Lucy, where I think that was the Lucy character's maiden name, fictitious maiden name for the TV show, McGillicuddy. That's where that name came from. Anyway, Beulah said that her own father was too ill uh, it was ailing to walk her down the aisle when she got married. So she asked Terry Funk to do that, to fill in for her dad. And I just thought, how special, how telling is that of everybody's love uh, of Ter Terry Funk uh, to do something like that. And uh, lastly, before I shut up on this monologue here, uh, we knew once Vicky Funk, uh, who she was kind of a, a real heavy duty smoker. Many of us nagged her, begged her to quit, just couldn't get her to do it. I mean, she was down to about two packs prior to her, uh, a couple of years before her passing. But when she went, uh, Terry started getting forgetful. And uh, like one time he called and left this long uh, voice message. My wife picked up and I wasn't in the house and uh, he used to know her by name, but he said, what have you done with Mike? Where is he? Why are you picking up the phone? Who are you? Uh, so he started forgetting things, which was really tragic for a lot of us who loved Terry uh, and uh, had uh, some memory issues. And right when COVID hit and uh, Vicky had, had passed, there was a couple of months later, but Kenny Casanova, a big book publisher and wrestling personality, uh, not just a publisher, but an author, he put together a thing to help the wrestlers called, it was COVIDCon. It was like a two and a half day nonstop wrestling marathon. And I hosted one of the shows for the first and second one, but I was supposed to be on the main event. Uh, I was the, the main event, our very last show. And I had booked Terry Funk and Abby to be my guests. So the three of us to do this, you know, an hour, but it was on Zoom. And Terry had started getting forgetful, and about a week before that, uh, his Terry's eldest daughter uh, asked that I maybe not, you know, please don't put my dad on. I don't want him being seen the way he is now. He might have a memory slip, etc. Uh, I, I want particularly his fans in Japan, but all of his fans globally to retain in their memories him at his peak, not the way he is now. So. I agreed and, you know, it was just me and Abby, but it would have been a lot of fun. I thought that would have been special for anyone listening because the COVIDCon uh, marathon podcast, uh, all from one streaming thing, 
uh, tons of wrestlers were on it. People that couldn't, you know, go to conventions or indie wrestlers. There was just every hour there was a plethora of wrestlers who weren't able to make money because the lockdown, the pandemic had shut everything down. So it was a noble cause. Uh, but I did read a statement from Terry Funk on that. And uh, a year or two, I think it was a good maybe 18 months before Terry had passed, his daughter moved him out near her in Colorado, away from his longtime home in Amarillo. She'd ha helped sell the ranch and moved uh, Terry first into an apartment. But when she moved him out uh, near her into assisted living and, um, you know, it was it was difficult because we remember Terry is this this vibrant, full of life, knowledgeable, again, perhaps the greatest wrestling learning tree of all time. And, uh, but anyway, I just wanted to share at least memories I had of him. And, and one other time before I forget, uh, besides a couple of times riding around with Terry over the decades, I think it was 92 at the Wrestling Flyer uh, convention. I had a hotel room, but it was not in the hotel. The promoter, you know, had me shoot for him. You know, he brought in talent like the Road Warriors, Ultimate Warrior, Sid Vicious, Nancy Sullivan, uh, and, and Terry. Uh, and uh, I was like, you know, complaining to the promoter, you, gee, you got my hotel room, but I'm like a mile and a half away. I kind of want to be here and shooting nonstop. So Terry had like a two and a half bedroom suite, offered me one of the, the suites uh, so I was able to, you know, room with him and stay out of his hair, but, you know, just offered that up. And I, there's also footage of him, like at uh, various Coraluzo Indies, as well as I think the last Joel Goodhart show, but in particular, the XPW stuff, like Terry Funk at the LA Sports Arena against Abdul the Butcher, and on another occasion, Sabu. He lit up the branding iron and he would chase me as the ringside photographer around the ring. And I'd have to run real fast because I, I didn't want, I had an expensive dark black, you had to wear black ringside. I didn't want my shirt getting burned. So I had to run and Terry Funk normally could outrun me, but I never did get nailed. So I'll shut up before I go, guys. Any, uh, since I've been talking, I it's always I feel like, geez, I'm doing a monologue here, but uh, is there anything I can answer or any anything you want me to add or anything you think I might have forgotten? Um, I like to ask kind of about you know his wrestling career one thing i've always found interesting get your opinion on this if you look back with you know early you know his early matches when he's the nwa champion very scientific wrestler very you know well versed in uh you know grappling on but then you look at his later career which is a lot of what a fans nowadays will know and you see the ecw and the death match and everything else and he was doing hardcore and you look at his age um, how was he able to transition from being, like I said, he was young and it was the scientific wrestler. And then in the later half of his career, he was kind of the, well, we'll call him crazy, uh, the crazy hardcore wrestler. Well, he was not a hundred percent scientific. I mean, I saw enough of his matches well before he became NWA champion. For example, on a tournament to determine the number one contender for Victor Rivera's America's title in LA. On the main event that night, it was like late January, early February, 1973, Victor Rivera defended against the Sheik, of all people, the real Sheik, Sabu's uncle. And for most of the match, it was Sheik with a towel around Rivera's head and Sheik getting juiced and Rivera getting juiced. The opening match, though, of the tournament preceding that, 
Jack Briscoe's debut in L.A. against Terry Funk, 10-minute Broadway, 10 or 15-minute Broadway, where Terry, you're right, that was all scientific. But prior to that, wherever I'd see him, and not just Los Angeles, and after that in the 70s, Terry was, um, he might start out the match, you know, headlock, drop down, toe hold, blah, blah. But it, it would he, he would revert to, like, punches. So there would be some hardcore elements. And then, of course, all the stuff he would do in Florida, uh, a lot of punches. But also, so it was a nice blend of hardcore, but also he would show his skill set in Madden Chain Wrestling, uh, like the stuff with Jerry Lawler, Empty Arena, and all that stuff well before ECW. And Paul Heyman has gone on record as saying there'd be no ECW without Terry Funk coming in lending us his credibility. So on to how could Terry Funk do that? Well, um, he, he he would, you know, I, some of us would ask him, uh, I think Meltzer more than myself, you know, like, how do you do it? How do you go into this mode, like during the ECW phase and then working the TWA prior to that? You know, the predecessor to ECW was Joel Goodhart's TWA in the Philly area where Todd Gordon was like the number two guy aiding Goodhart with this promotion with all these superstars, the Funks, particularly Terry, almost on every show, Terry against Kevin Sullivan, and they were doing all kinds of hardcore stuff. So Terry would just say he, you know, he didn't say he was psyching himself out, but once the ring intros happened and he got out there, any aches and pains, because his knees were shot for years and years and years, his lower back shot and, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard, uh, even in the 80s and, and 90s, early 90s, doctors would see his x-rays and and check him out and say, how do you even walk, let alone Russell? They, they couldn't believe he was mobile. And after shows, like after, for example, the Bret Hart match, which wasn't a whole lot of, uh, you know, there was, say, about half of it was scientific wrestling before they got into the rough stuff. Um Terry could barely move before it and then during it he just transformed himself and was able to get into wrestling Terry wrestling brain and do it and then afterwards he just collapsed sitting next to Dory Jr. backstage and being interviewed by Barry Blaustein I was Barry's uh, still image photographer you know for years of pre-production on Beyond the Mat but uh, at the Amarillo event that's people remember a portion of that was in Beyond the Mat, so Barry Blaustein, the showrunner, director, uh, producer with Barry Bloom was like filming Terry backstage, just collapsed, you know, bloody, and he could just barely move. You could tell he was in great pain. So it's like that wrestler psyching themselves out, not wanting to disappoint the fans and to give them the best possible version of themselves and the best show and the best athletic contest they could. Um, and that's why he was such a marvel to people backstage at ECW. I saw him a number of times backstage at ECW, uh, you know, after like matches with Mick Foley, Cactus, etc., and, and Sabu and Shane Douglas. And the guys, the boys, the boys and girls, the talent workers, they just couldn't believe, you know, uh, Terry was able to keep up. And in particular, he was the first guy to do a pile driver. That was to Ric Flair in 89 on that table, which looked stiff as hell and people were gasping geez how you know because it, it also hurt or you know uh wouldn't say injured but it hurt terry uh, giving the that to uh, to flair and then of course the famous moonsault when he did his first moonsault particularly at his age 
so he was able to uh, keep up, learn the styles intentionally, and then execute them in the ring with precision. You know, how about uh, what he did in that first match, uh, that first uh, ECW pay-per-view, uh, you know, as people have been talking about in the last few months with the ladder, you know, whirling around, using it as a weapon to, you know, to nail, uh, who was it, Sandman and uh, Stevie Richards in that main, uh, and some other folks who interfered in the match, the main event of that, Living Dangerously. Um, yeah, he was just amazing. And you're not going to see anybody like that who went from his earliest roots and the territory days on to the hardest of hardcore. We haven't even gotten into the stuff in FMW with Atsuchi Onita or even the exploding landmine match with Mick Foley. That in Japan, so amazing. But Onita, and Onita cried anytime Terry Funk would come in for him. So honored because remember the Funks were the first gaijin or foreign wrestlers to come into Japan that were cheered, you know, because of the bombing in World War II, the Americans, Gaijins, when they would come in, were booked as, as heels, you know, from the uh, uh, Sharp brothers, Ben and Mike Sharp, uh, you know, Ben and Mike Sharp Sr. Uh, I think Mike Sr. was uh, the WWF's semi-jobber, Mike Sharp's father. In fact, I'm pretty sure of it. Or Blassie or Dick Byers, the Destroyer. They were always booed heels, but the Funks were the first to get cheers and to, you know, they created such a legend for themselves. It's unbelievable in Japan alone, besides other places in the world, uh, you know, like Europe and uh, Hawaii. Uh, one show, one of my favorite shows ever at the HIC Arena, now renamed Blaisdell. This was the Ed Francis, wrestler Ed Francis who, uh, when he retired, became the promoter in Honolulu at the HIC. He was the father of Russ Francis and some of the other NFL players who tried their hand at pro wrestling, Russ being the, the most adept at that. But that card, I think it was 73, on top was a Texas Deathmatch, Double Juice, Brawling All... We're talking 1973. Sheik against Terry Funk, main event, brawling all over the place. Juice getting on all over the fans. There was a battle royal on the show with... Uh, I believe it was the very first meeting of Giant Baba and Andre the Giant. Gene Kaniski was in that battle royal. Just a wealth of talent. Uh, Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwell defending you know, their AWA world titles against then still tri-WF world champion Pedro Morales team with fellow legend Bobo Brazil. And Hawaii was unique and the Funks loved doing a shot there because Terry said it felt like a vacation. They were on their way to or from Japan so they would... Uh, uh, the promoter, Ed Francis, would try to book his cards to take advantage of those wrestlers coming and going. You know, they could just drop in uh, for the evening and then deplane, you know, get going back to Japan or coming back to the U.S. from Japan. Uh, so Terry, uh, more so than even Dory, but Terry had quite the history in Honolulu and as a brawling type uh, from 72 on. So just... Just amazing. I hope I, I answered that question. Oh, yes, you did. I Why mean, so he was that? he was like all the versions of hardcore Terry mastered and was like the example of then leading up to him being sort of this God figure in the TWA, which preceded and was like the uh, predecessor to ECW, which, you know, if there wasn't Terry Funk, there really, I think... Uh, not sure if it would have morphed from Eastern Championship Wrestling to Extreme Championship Wrestling. 
Okay. Uh, I have another question uh, before you go, Mike. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about his pro wrestling career, but with Terry Funk, uh, he had also, uh, you know, he to a degree had dipped his toes into the, the, the Hollywood acting scene. And uh. most in particular, though, I want to talk about his relationship with Sylvester Stallone and the impact that relationship had um, not only on Terry, but also on Sylvester Stallone as far as their working relationship, because this goes back to Paradise Alley. But how those guys got connected and how this friendship uh, evolved through the years and, and some of the stuff Terry was able to uh, influence Sly on. I mean, it was very important even into pro wrestling and Hollywood combined. I've only met Stallone briefly backstage at the 2005 uh, WWF, well, WWE then, Hall of Fame in Los Angeles at Universal Studios, where he inducted Hogan. Never got to ask Stallone about their relationship. Terry said that Stallone trusted him so much that Terry uh, booked the talent used in that hip toss segment in Paradise Alley, where Kid Salami, uh, the wrestler, fictitious brother of uh, the Sylvester Stallone character uh, when he was, you know, really progressing uh, in his craft, he'd hip tossed a bunch of guys that Terry had hired. So Sylvester Stallone trusted Terry to hire all the wrestlers. So Roddy Piper, uh, Don Leo Jonathan, I think Chavo Guerrero, there was a multitude, you know, it was like 10, 11 guys, named guys that Terry Funk had hired and Terry choreographed all the, most all the pro wrestling scenes in that. Stallone hired Terry for, was it the arm wrestling movie? Yes. Terry over, was in another Stallone the, movie, yeah. not not as big a deal as being the lead heel in Paradise Alley, which is an incredible movie. It came out, I think, not long after the the um, Fonzie, the Henry Winkler. The one and only. My one and only. My one and only, which was like a loosely based on Gorgeous George's life. So we had, we, we never got any kind of mainstream pro wrestling back in the day you know until andre the giant was on the tonight show and carson was off that night so i think mike douglas was the guest host we never got anything and then we get these two movies and then more and more so terry was uh not the first wrestler uh you know there were others uh like gorgeous george had his own wrestling movie and i forget it was 1940 alias, alias the champ, champ. And, yeah i remember that yeah, one which is a big deal. There were other wrestlers like Mighty Joe Young had Primo Carnera and I think Swedish Angel or Super Swedish Angel, uh, that, that knockoff King Kong movie with actress Terry Moore, who was married to Howard Hughes. Uh, she was in it. But Terry really was an incredible heel in Paradise Alley. I think we all marked out when we saw how great he was. Okay. And at, when he came in for that and was you know there in Southern Cal, "Quote unquote Hollywood for a lengthy period of time, he discovered the this apartment for actors that was first class, reasonable. Uh, there was uh, food to purchase on premises, and there were it was gate enclosed, and it was affordable enough so actors could come and rent there, you know, for a day or months on end, and uh, and not have to be you know besieged by fans. You know, they could concentrate on their acting, whether they were an actor or a wrestler actor like Terry Funk." And he recommended the place and Jesse Ventura and other wrestlers that followed like Roddy Piper uh, and more would rent there and take Terry's lead and advice, hey, this is the place to stay when you're in Hollywood and, and you're doing a film or reading for, uh, you know, hopefully get hired, uh, et cetera, or getting trained for a role. 
So his uh, impact, once again, as a learning tree, went on to other wrestlers. I've only named Ventura and Piper, but there were many others uh, to follow. Like, uh, he was asked to be in the... It was a pretty horrendous low-budget movie, but it was a fun movie because I'm doing a book right now on the Tolis brothers, in particular John Tolis, with my radio partner Evan Ginsberg. And John Tolis was, you know, like the lead guy with Adrian Street in this movie, Grunt. It was called Grunt the Wrestling Movie. And Terry Funk had been asked to be in it, but he was busy with another Hollywood project and couldn't do it. And um, so you, his influence far and wide, and uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, has eluded him in his wrestling career. Because Terry had a much, I would say, critically more successful career than Hogan to follow who Terry surprisingly was fond of and also gave advice to, you know, uh, Hogan did have his stretch of movies, uh, several more than Terry, but Terry had some TV roles and uh, he was originally asked to, uh, to be in uh, that uh, TV series. I think it was called the highwaymen with of all people, Jesse Ventura and Roddy Piper. So Terry couldn't even do a cameo for that. He was so busy, but he had, Lots of friends that he acquired along the way, people who idolized him, expressed themselves as that from Arnold Schwarzenegger to Lou Ferrigno in, in the, you know, the movie business when those guys got in there. And uh, there was uh, Roadhouse, the movie, there's that infamous thing, you know, the Patrick Swayze movie. That was another great Terry Funk movie. Absolutely. But at the, uh, I'm wrapping my part up if you guys need to break. Terry Funk at the victory party, you know, or after filming of it, uh, had one too many beers, he said, and uh, was uh, very colorful in getting up on stage and singing, <laughs> shall we say, at this this party at Roadhouse. So Terry Funk, legend of the movies, I would have loved to have seen a lot more work from him because he was so damn good. But start if anybody's going to start with something, just check him out in Paradise Alley if you love wrestling, and if you love Terry Funk, check him out in Roadhouse too. If you've not seen that a zillion times, like most of us have. Oh yeah, absolutely. And Over the Top was where he played uh, That's it. Robert Loja's heavy. It gets thrown through the wind of the glass. Amazing, yeah, amazing. Terry Funk, we're just so proud. And again, there will never <laughs> be anybody even remotely replacing him coming close. There's only one Terry Funk in pro wrestling, and uh, what oh, God man, bless him. It just. We, we just pay homage to him, love him, uh, and miss him terribly. And, uh, you know, you can't think pro wrestling. I mean, that's a guy that's got to be, I hope, on most people's number ones for if there was a Mount Rushmore, Terry Funk's got to be on there. Oh, 100%. And I just, before you go, I was the first time I really had any exposure to Terry Funk as a kid was I watched that. My parents and I, we all, we all gathered around and watched the short-lived Western TV show Wild Side, and I've been re-watching that with a young Meg Ryan and Howard Rollins Jr. But on the first episode, a kid is in there, and he's played by a guy that had a relationship with Terry, a young Jason Hervey. Yep, Jason Hervey, who would go on to uh, co-book a lot of stuff with Eric Bischoff and uh, had a lot of behind-the-scenes in WCW, thanks to Bischoff, but then, of course, in, in TNA uh, was Bischoff's right-hand guy, and then they were together. I was uh, shot, photographed at the uh, Hulk Hogan. Remember that reality show where they had all these celebrities like Dennis Rodman and the guy that passed away from... Uh, uh, Desmond Diamond, who passed away, but he was right up there. And uh, the guy from uh, played Willis in uh, Oh yes, Facts yes, of Life. Uh, the celebrity yeah. wrestling thing they have for CMT. 
Yeah. Uh, whenever I was backstage at that thing, Herbie and Bischoff were attached to the hip. They produced, put that whole thing together. That was their, you know, Hogan just relied on them. They came up with the whole thing and uh, were showrunners and put it together. So uh, big, big deal. And I think Jason Herbie first met Terry Funk when he was uh, briefly Missy Hyatt's boyfriend. This was in 1991. Mel I was over in Japan for three weeks. Meltzer came over to join me for that uh, March 17th, 1991, Flair versus Fujinami. First New Japan versus NWA Tokyo Dome show. Oh, okay. I was already there three weeks. Anyway, we fly back to LA for Cauliflower Alley and sat at Missy uh, Hyatt and Jason Herbie's table. But that was the first place because I took pictures of Terry Funk shaking hands for the first time, I believe, with Jason Herbie right there. And of course, had to have Missy Hyatt in the shots because she was uh, gorgeous. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Mike, uh, boy, we were getting really close to wrapping up. Uh, and, and we thank you so much for uh, taking, uh, even going those extra innings with us today. Uh, always enjoy having you on. You call it a monologue. We call it sitting under the learning tree. And a lot of the fans love to listen and hear stories about the greats. Uh, yes, we're celebrating Terry Funk. And it was very, very nice and kind of you to d donate some of your time today. It was very, very cool. Well, we call it in wrestling giving one their flowers. I don't think there's enough flowers on the planet to give to Terry Funk. He okay. did that much for wrestling and for other human beings. He's just a magnificent person. Won't be anybody like him ever. No, no, not at all. So, hey, Mike, thanks a lot. Like Again, me and, me and the Grizzle Whiz are very grateful for you. No, no, thank you both. Thank you for doing this and paying tribute to wrestlers. They all deserve it. Uh, you know, we've lost X amount this year. Uh, we shouldn't have lost any of them, particularly Terry. So, uh, anyway, just thank you both. Take care, Mike. Thank you, guys. All right, that was Dr. Mike Lano, and boy, we always sit under the learning tree with Mike, and it's I, I just love sitting back and you know I don't try to look and get a try to get a shot in a question in because he is just stream of consciousness speaking is just I mean he has a brief outline, but he has such a great knowledge, Mike. Oh, definitely. Ask one question and just let him go. Uh, Mike's always like one of our best guests for, oh. you know, we need to bring him on though for something other than just a tribute though. Him and Evan Ginsberg are like our go-to, uh, tribute guys. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be <laughs> fair because we can really further extend their, you know, just what their expertise is instead of just looking back and, and being somber. I'd love to get them fully, you know, just kind of light the spark with those two guys to get them on some topics and sometimes the best thing for us would be just to get that quest, quick question in to ignite it and then just step back and let those guys just go like masters. Oh, exactly, man. I was looking forward to that one. You know, and speaking of, you know, learning trees and interviews and things like that, we've got one coming up uh, our listeners might be interested in. We're going to be recording the Outdated Wrestling Hour with Bob Smith uh, coming up this weekend as uh, we're recording this episode. Yep, and I mentioned a little bit about uh, trying to get the information. Uh, I'm going to probably get that thing uh, sent to you here shortly, uh, you know, about a little history. So my, kind of our pre-interview, I guess, of sorts, as far as uh, getting some info to Bob and, you know, putting him in the direction. I think for Bob, we should just, like, just send him our SoundCloud link. Yeah, that would work. I, I think he's actually followed some of the SoundCloud stuff. Okay. Uh, we were talking all that. I think he's went and looked up some. Uh, I've been doing that, too, because obviously this show has been going on many years before I joined and dude, I did not realize some of the guests you had, man. I listened to that episode with uh, Billy Jack Haynes. Uh -huh. uh, fascinating interview. Cause you never know what Billy Jack's going to say. Oh, no, yeah. that's for sure, man. You know, and I'm glad you listened to him. I mean, that was, I mean, that was an interview where 
I don't know. He didn't go off on it too far off on the deep end with me. It was pretty, pretty civil conversation. I think I got a good side of Billy. Some of the side that people probably miss uh, from him that that more quiet, but you know, not afraid to speak his mind, but you know, not going into any sort of uh, you know a rage or a wrestling promo. That was that was a fun interview. It was interesting. I enjoyed it. Uh, Listen to your interview with Jim Cornette. Jim Cornette's always a fun one. I would love to get him on a show again, but I don't know if he does interviews much anymore. I think he pretty much just does his five and six hour marathons talking about, you know, cast media and everything. And uh, I, th- I think he sticks to that nowadays. But an interview with Jim Cornette now would be like Mike Leno. Give him a question and let him go. Yep. Yeah. Yep. What's what's going on, Jim? Boom, 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 boom. Then like an hour later, we're like, hey, thanks a lot for that experience. Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, Possibly it was a, not, it's a heavy bad. editing, though. Yeah, yeah, heavy editing, and which I, I'm, uh, you know me, I'm, I'm no stranger to heavy editing. I gave you the Steve Cox episode, man. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there's a lot in the archives that stuff that we did and and stuff that George Shire and I had also uh, created as well, and we had George just on here not all that long ago to um, help celebrate and look back on the the career of Adnan LKC. And boy, that was a that was a good conversation. It's always good to revisit. But again, that's another one in the category. We if we have him on, it, we like to have him on for more than just uh, looking back on a tribute to someone who had just recently passed. Yes, we have we have our go tos. You know, Mike, George, Evan, kind of our go tos when uh, you know when when someone passes a lot. And of course, Keith Elliott Greenberg. Uh, we, we he's another one of our go tos for that one. We have quite a gallery of people that we can reach out to for this show. Yeah, you know, it's kind of crazy for us in our little old radio show up here in Thief River Falls, based out of Thief River Falls, Minnesota. I mean, for it to be lasting this long and for us to be able to be connecting with a lot of these, you know, great behind the scenes people, historians, wrestlers, I mean, the people in the television industry for wrestling. I mean, this is something that we, a project that kind of got started just off of a casual conversation with. George Shire and myself, after I had George up here in Thief River Falls to, at the library to uh, talk about pro wrestling and promote his uh, book at the time about the history of pro wrestling in Minnesota. So it kind of started from there and we kind of hit it off on this thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're talking about an idea for wrestling memories. And next thing you know, we're, we're, I'm, we're getting guests together. And, you know, I still look back at that episode, one of the earlier episodes, and see that we, uh, we talked to Billy Robinson. We had talked to Greg Klein about the Junkyard Dog book. And Greg Klein now has a, a, a pretty entertaining podcast as well. And that's another person I'd love to have on the show just to kind of reconnect with and, and talk about him and his uh, pro wrestling experiences and also his love and appreciation for the Houston Paul Bosch territory. Well, then it sounds like I need to reach out to this person and see what I can do as far as, you know, booking that interview. Because you ask and I try to deliver. So, Well, absolutely. You do quite a good job uh, as far as lining up some really good guests. I mean, we uh, we go back in time, but we are also uh, very, very much in the now, too. Uh, and having some people from the pro wrestling community that you may not have known or you're getting to know uh, on the independent level. I mean, that is always very intriguing, too, because that's another uh, animal in and of itself from nowadays, the major sports entertainment, is this, this indie scene that never seems to quit. You can't keep it down for long. Oh, no. 
here in Texas, our indie scene is just huge. And oh, in some ways, the indie scene is now representing the territories back in the day because, you know, guys are able to, there's a lot of guys that are able to work, you know, every weekend, three, four days during the week. You know, there, I know guys that are able to actually make a living doing this again. So it's kind of fun to see all that. And of course, as far as the evolution of the show goes, you know, you and I are always talking about kind of different format ideas that we want to play around with, maybe do a little kind of, you know, cornet experience, you know, ish type of show where we kind of look at current topics, give our opinions, maybe bring in a couple of people just kind of talk with us about it. So oh, absolutely. You know, always evolving. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you never can be too complacent in one little area for too long. And that's kind of what we do around here. So we kind of just gave people a little bit of a, I guess, a refresh on what we're all about. So I guess it's kind of our prep for uh, upcoming interview with Bob. Uh, you know, looking forward to that as well. And hopefully uh, I, I don't bomb or completely forget to say some things I need to get done. So this is kind of our opening refresher. This is This is something that's kind of like the practice, the practicum for it. I think I think we're going to be good, man. You know, Bob was a guest on our show a few weeks ago, and great conversation. And out of that conversation, he gave us an invitation for his show, and he kind of wants to get our show out to his listeners. So, and you know, the Spotify audience and everything that he has. So, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun. I don't get the chance to be the interviewee. I'm usually the interviewer. <laughs> yeah, that'll be fun for me as well. And you know. And then, you know, that could be also encouraging for us, you know, for our future as far as, like, expanding ourselves beyond just our SoundCloud and, and, and the radio thing to kind of uh, find some place to put this uh, this program, you know, and our archive and, and maybe get some traction on that. Find the, you know, what the kids say, find the right algorithm. <laughs> do what the cool kids do. We could easily add, you know, back, you know, episodes to uh, a Spotify, maybe you know, record some intros for them and put them together, edit some episodes, get them up on Spotify. But, you know, let's do the outdated wrestling hour and, and see how people react to hearing us on a, a larger scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's hope uh, let's hope for the best on that. OK, Mike, it's time for us to call good. Uh, thanks once again for uh, not only uh, contributing to the show here uh, vocally, but also behind the scenes, getting another great guest, Dr. Mike Lano, today as we look back on the life and career of Terry Funk. Oh, yeah, we'll do this again. How about it? I, I think we'll I think we'll get together again the next week or so and we'll we'll do some more memories. All right, for the Grizzle Whiz or Grizzled Vet, sorry, Mike uh, and Doctor Mike Lano, I'm Glenn Brock. <laughs> I'm Glenn Brock, and this is Wrestling Memories.